This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I have no new Patreon subscribers. If anybody would like to sign up, it is Mysterious Circumstances. Just go to Patreon, type in Mysterious Circumstances, you'll find me. I got two bonus episodes, one full length every month, and I'm actually going to start adding content, giving early access to episodes on there. They will be completely ad-free. It'll just be the episode. You'll get it a few days earlier than everybody else on the main feed. I was actually going to do that with this episode, but I don't know, after I thought about it, it's not really a point in doing it on a part three. With that being said, I do have a lot of reviews to read, along with a pretty troll-worthy one-star review, which those in the Facebook group saw. However, I'm going to wait till the next episode to read reviews. We do have some exciting stuff coming up, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you'd like to do a one-time donation as well, I have Venmo at MC Podcast. All right, before we get going, I have to give credit where it's due. I got two books for you. I got one called Mr. Capone by Robert Schoenberg. I got another one called Capone, The Man and the Era by Lawrence Burgreen. I have a very lengthy article that I used for a lot of research, a four-part story, in the Evening Telegraph, a newspaper out of Dixon, Illinois, dated June 26, 1931. They ran a four-part series, big story on the uh, conviction. John Drummond, who was a crime reporter. Terrence McCarthy, who is a former Chicago federal defender. I'm not sure if he still is or not. And I have another one named Wayne Johnson, who was part of the Chicago Crime Commission. So there's some sources. A lot of that information from these sources was taken and put on Wikipedia. So um, believe it or not, Wikipedia actually had some pretty valuable information regarding Al Capone. But of course, I had to dig a little bit deeper. So there's that. But anyway, I am Justin. This is Mysterious Circumstances. And you're listening to Al Capone. Part 3. Capone's run as a mob kingpin was over, but his fingerprints on crime and Chicago's reputation lives on. It's safe to assume that Capone never expected to be convicted, or if he was convicted, he expected to spend perhaps a year or two in jail, not 10 or 11 years. The stiffest penalty of any tax case to date. Not murder, not pimping, not all the dirty things he did or killing, but income tax. But that was the only way he could be... Prosecuted. As he left court, he looked to the photographers and said, Get enough, boys. You won't be seeing me for a long time. Uh, he had a peculiar charm about him that he could use when he wanted to use. And this, of course, was deceptive. But as we all know, he didn't use his talent in that direction. And uh, as a result, people died, people were hurt, and Chicago lost its reputation. There's no doubt but that the, the Capone era established the underpinnings of what is now 
the Chicago organized crime family. Of course, Capone is world famous. Wherever you go, if you mention Chicago, people instantly associate that city with Capone. There are lo lots of celebrities. Very, very few of them become allusions. So their name means the same thing to everyone who hears it. Capone was one. Okay, the start of this episode, we have to backtrack a little bit back to 1927, like the mid-1920s, because this is when they officially started looking into Al Capone for tax evasion, because they were busting a lot of other gangsters, his brother included, and we'll get to that, but Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt, she recognized that all these mob guys we're just spending a shitload of money living their best lives out there wearing $700,000 diamond pinky rings like Al Capone was. And she also noticed that they had never filed any tax returns. So they could be convicted of tax evasion without requiring hard evidence to get uh, testimony about their other crimes. So she tested this by prosecuting a South Carolina a bootlegger by the name of Manley Sullivan. And in 1927, the Supreme Court ruled in uh, the United States versus Sullivan that the approach was legally sound. Legally earned income was subject to income tax. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. rejected the argument that the Fifth Amendment protected criminals from reporting illegal income. The IRS then puts together this task force of special agents one of which being N.E. Tessum, Clarence Converse from Chicago, Archie Martin from Kansas, and revenue agents Westrick and Claggett, both those guys were both from Brooklyn, and then another guy named William Hodgins in Chicago. And the Special Investigation Unit chose Special Agent Frank J. Wilson to investigate Capone. This would focus on his spending, and they started investigating in 1927, and they did for four years through 1931. So this was just not some random, oh man, we found these papers. These dudes literally did their homework, and listen, I know we've all seen the movie The Untouchables. Okay, it is an amazing movie. Great cast, great storyline, and it's somewhat true to form. Now, you might hear me talking a little bit of shit about Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, because at the end of the day, the people who were responsible for getting Al Capone busted and put behind bars for 11 years were not the Untouchables. <laughs> it was these tax guys, mainly the unsung hero, Frank J. Wilson, and of course the DA of Chicago at the time, a guy named George E.Q. Johnson. And we'll talk about them a little bit more in length here later. So how this all started was Ralph Capone. Like if Ralph Capone wouldn't have gotten busted for tax evasion, there's a good chance that Capone probably could have fought it a lot better and might not have even gotten caught for tax evasion. An IRS agent found out Ralph Capone hadn't paid taxes from 1922 to 1925. 
This IRS agent actually went to Ralph Capone and told him to pay them. He's like, listen, dude, you know, they're on to you. They literally have you with four years without paying taxes. You should probably pay these and get it, get it taken care of. Capone filed, okay, his taxes, but he didn't pay any. He said he didn't have the income. And what Ralph Capone did is offered a thousand dollars as a compromise. So in January of 1928, the IRS starts looking into his ability to pay the taxes and they come across this $500 check. And this check is from a guy in Cicero who ran a slot machine racket and they start going through bank accounts, right? They start going through his and they found out the check had been deposited in a bank in Cicero, which was, as we know, a Capone stronghold. This was their gang's headquarters for many years. So that was the first clue in. And then they find out that the check was written to a guy named James Carson. And then the IRS finds out that before Ralph Capone had an account in his own name, he had six other accounts under different aliases. So for six weeks, six guys did absolutely nothing but trace all these checks to different accounts. And keep in mind, this is in the mid to late 1920s. Like, they don't have computers. They ain't just, like, scrolling through shit looking for algorithms. These motherfuckers are going to the banks, going through records, seeing where checks are being withdrawn, deposited, what names they're under, all this shit, all right? So the agents, the IRS agents, got witnesses to say that Ralph signed the checks, and then they traced the checks from guys who had bars and speakeasies, and some of them eventually did testify. Now, during that time, all right, when they were looking at all these different accounts, these, this four-year time frame where Ralph Capone is withdrawing money under all these six different aliases, where he's depositing money under a different name, they find out that during this time, $2 million had gone through these various accounts. So investigators went through all the withdrawals, then through all the deposits that occurred simultaneously. Now, these checks led to various accounts held by Jack Guzik. All right, now Jack Guzik, as we know from the two previous episodes, was a good friend of Al Capone. He was one of the money guys. He was definitely a confidant of the outfit, all right? So as soon as they made that connection, that's when they started linking all these gangsters together. So Frank Wilson, our unsung hero of putting Capone behind bars, he ends up finding one of Capone's bookkeepers, a guy by the name of Fred Reese. He was a bookkeeper for one of Capone's gambling places in Cicero. And his job was to take the money, all the profits, to the bank and to deposit that money. So Frank Wilson goes to the bank where they find out he's been in and out of and they ask the bank teller about him. And the bank teller tells a really interesting story. The bank teller told Frank Wilson that one time Reese had come in and dumped a bag full of money on the counter. Now that might not seem like a big deal. I'm sure it probably happened all the time in Cicero. But the thing about it was there was a cockroach in this bag, okay? And Fred Reese sees this cockroach 
he freaks out. He turns pale white. He loses his shit. And the bank teller is just like, what is wrong, dude? What the hell's the matter with you? And Fred Reese explains that he has this phobia of bugs, like this really bad phobia, and especially a phobia of cockroaches. So Frank Wilson has this information now. And like I said, they're tracking all this money, and this is part of the investigation, right? So Frank Wilson goes to St. Louis, Missouri, and he arrests Fred Reese. He doesn't really arrest him. He goes and picks him up, and he questions him. And Fred Reese says he ain't gonna say shit. I ain't talking, man. So they decide to take him back to Chicago. But on the way back to Chicago, they take him to this small jail in Danville, Illinois. They actually had all the paperwork hidden. They had all the commitment papers, like, very well hush-hush. Because there were so many people on Al Capone's payroll that they didn't want anyone to know that Fred Reese had been picked up because somebody would have clued off Al Capone and Capone would have taken care of the situation. Whether Fred Reese said he was going to talk or not, didn't matter. Fred Reese probably would have been killed if Al Capone would have found out. So the authorities made it a point to keep all this very, very hush-hush. Now the cops had absolutely no reason, technically no reason to hold Fred Reese in jail. But what they do is they put him in the worst cell in this jail. And they make sure that it was the cell with the most bugs and cockroaches in it. So after a little while, Fred Reese can't take it anymore. And he ends up being the key witness that they needed to take Al Capone to trial. So later on, Fred Reese had testified at various times he had bought... $250,000 worth of cashier's checks with profits from gambling houses, and all these checks could be traced back to Jack Guzik. Then the IRS agents find some uh, dividend checks from the Hawthorne Inn for the dog racing that Capone had set up at this place. They were deposited to an account of Dr. David Owens. Owens admitted in court that his money actually belonged to Jack Guzik. Then the IRS traced that money to Sam Guzik, who is Jack Guzik's brother. That trial, like I said, this is all of of Ralph Capone, right? This trial leads to Frank Nitti, who is the treasurer of the outfit. But Frank Nitti was way smarter than the other guys. Frank Nitti didn't cash the checks. He would leave them at the bank until they cleared, and then he would just go pick up cash. And this cash amounted to about $800,000 in two years. Now, that $800,000 in two years today would be about $12 million. And Frank Nitti ended up taking this plea deal and getting 18 months in Leavenworth, which for those who don't know, Leavenworth is a federal pen. So the key to Capone's conviction on tax charges was proving his income. And the most valuable evidence in that regard originated in his offer to pay the back taxes when they confronted him about it. Now, like I said, Ralph, Ralph Capone, his brother, he was tried and found guilty of tax evasion in 1930. He did three years in prison after a two-week trial in which uh, Judge uh, Wilkerson presided. Now, Capone ordered his lawyer to regularize his tax position. 
and there were some negotiations that followed, and his lawyer stated the income that Capone was willing to pay tax on for various years. He admitted income of $100,000 for 1928 and 1929. So check this out. Without any investigation, all right, this is before Capone even really knows he's being investigated, the government gets a letter from a lawyer who was working for Capone, and Capone was conceding a very large taxable income for certain years. So basically, Capone saw a couple people get busted for this tax evasion, and he's like, fuck, they're going to get me too. So he lawyers up, and then all of a sudden the government gets a letter from his lawyer saying, hey, my client is admitting income of $100,000 for 1928 and 1929, and he wants to pay the taxes on it. And the government is like, oh, really? All right. So on March 13th, 1931, Capone was charged with income tax evasion for 1924 in a secret grand jury. On June 5th, 1931, Capone was indicted by a federal grand jury on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 through 1929. He ended up being released on $50,000 bail. And before we start getting into the Elliot Ness factor, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. Go grab a drink, do what you got to do. I'll meet you guys back here in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So as most of you know, I spend a lot of my time researching unsolved mysteries, researching history that might be a little bit weird to try to find out the truth. So... What I like to do in my spare time is totally go off the board, and I like to play a game called Best Fiends. Because there's challenging puzzles, there's a whole storyline to it, it engages your brain, and it is fun. Now, it is a casual game that anybody can play, but it is made for adults. You can spend as much time or as little time as you'd like playing the game. Doesn't matter. I personally am over a level 100 right now. Because when I pick up the game, when I have free time, I just keep playing. I can't stop myself. It's really fun to look at as well because you have a lot of different characters. You have a lot of bright colors, so it definitely keeps your attention. And the big thing for me is a person who likes to try to solve puzzles, being in podcasting in certain episodes that I do, as you progress through the levels, the puzzles get harder and harder. And I personally love that kind of thing. And it's awesome because they update the game monthly. So there's always new things coming out. It never gets old. And it's great for traveling too because you don't need the internet to play this game. I mean, I'll play it sometimes when I'm in a public place and I really don't want to talk to people. I just turn on the game, go for a couple levels, have some fun. And you know it's a good game because it has over 100 million downloads. So if you want to engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. 
All right. So at this point, Elliot Ness and the Untouchables are involved in all this. They are on the scene. But what they're trying to do is trying to get Capone indicted on violations of the Volstead Act, which was prohibition. All right. So they're going around busting up all these breweries and shit, trying to find evidence that these are Capone's breweries, da da da. And they're getting shitty because the IRS was actually doing more and had indicted Al Capone on tax evasion counts. And they were getting more publicity than Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. And by the way, they're called the Untouchables because they were believed to be, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't be corrupted. They couldn't be bought off. So that's, you know, where they got that name. Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, Elliot Ness being the main guy, is kind of, I don't want to say jealous, but he's like, okay, these pencil pushers are coming in here and, you know, they're getting shit done. Like, they just got Capone indicted on 22 counts of income tax evasions. We're out here busting up breweries and getting pictures taken in the newspaper. But at the end of the day, all these nerds you know what i'm saying for lack of a better term no offense to anybody who does accounting and shit but they're like well these fucking nerds over here they're getting it done so elliot ness is shitty right so a week later a week later elliot ness and the untouchables they went and they hit up a lot more of capone's operations uh they started busting the shit up and this led to his indictment on 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act. All right. Now, I will not sit here and say that Elliot Ness did not do a lot. All right. Because he did. He was, he was a famed lawman. The Untouchables were not the guys that got bought off. And if you've seen the movie, it's kind of, you know, might be a little exaggerated. Okay. But ultimately, the tax evasion charges were worth more time than the Volstead Act charges. And since Elliot Ness came in after he was already being charged and indicted with tax evasion, you know, they went after the tax evasion charges as opposed to the violations of the Volstead Act, even though it was 5,000 violations didn't matter. These 22 counts of income tax evasion ultimately would be worth more time in prison than the Volstead Act violations, all right? So on June 16th, 1931, at the Chicago Federal Building in the courtroom of Judge James Herbert Wilkerson, Capone pled guilty to income tax evasion, and he pled guilty to the 5,000 Volstead Act violations as part of a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence plea bargain. Specifically, Al Capone was charged with failure to file, failure to pay, attempt to defeat and evade income taxes from the years 1924 to 1929 on income worth about $1.1 million, which today would be about $15.6 million. Now the government comes and they said they can prove he evaded paying a little bit over $215,000, which is the equivalent of about $3.2 million today. Also, a 50% penalty for fraud tacked on to that $215,000. On July 30th, 1931, Judge Wilkerson refused to honor the plea bargain. And then Capone's legal counsel 
took back their guilty pleas. They rescinded them. They're like, okay, like if this is how it's going to go down, like you're not going to honor this plea deal, then he's not going to plead guilty. Like we're going to take it to a jury trial and we're going to fight this. So on the second day of the trial, Judge Wilkerson overruled objections that a lawyer could not confess for his client, saying that anyone making a statement to the government did so at his own risk. And this is what I was referring to when I said that Capone lawyered up before he got indicted and was like, hey, I made $100,000 in these two years. I'm going to go ahead and pay my taxes for him. So that's what he's talking about there. So Judge Wilkerson deemed that the 1930 letter to federal authorities could be admitted into evidence from a lawyer acting for Capone. Wilkerson later tried Capone only on the income tax evasion charges as he determined they took precedence over the Volstead Act charges, which is what I had mentioned earlier. Now, there was some other evidence. There were witnesses, there were ledgers, but the thing about it was those only implied Capone's control. They didn't state his control. So Capone's lawyers, who had uh, relied on the plea bargain that Judge Wilkerson refused to honor, and they had hours to prepare for a trial. Like, they found this out hours before the trial started. Their defense was shit, okay? They, they focused on claiming that essentially all his income was lost in gambling, that he had made all this money, but he had also lost it all gambling, so there was nothing to technically pay taxes on. But that that is a weak defense for a tax evasion, okay, tax evasion case. Now, you got to remember, too, at this point in time, you know, we're, it's Great Depression time, okay, and you'll see a lot of, like, documentaries, you'll see a lot of articles written, and it's mentioned in a couple books by a couple authors as well. I don't know why they single out the soup kitchens. They're like, well, this just proves that all those soup kitchens that he used to run, you know, for the poor people, this dude was feeding 3,000 to 10,000 people a day in soup kitchens when they had no other meals, all right? Now, granted, that probably was a PR move, but at the same time, the people of Chicago did not give a shit if it was a PR move or not because these were the only three square meals that they were getting a day. They did not give a shit. Now, a lot of these, like I said, authors and articles and da-da-da, they point out, well, the soup kitchen stopped. That just proves it was a PR move. Listen to me, man. If you're on trial for tax evasion, why are you going to spend money funding all these soup kitchens? Like, he poured a lot of money into that shit. So, whether it was a PR move or he was just trying to help, I mean, either way, it made him look good. It was definitely a PR move, if you ask me. But at the same time, he was still doing... Good, And I'm not trying to play devil's advocate, not trying to justify anything here. But at the end of the day, facts are facts. He was feeding a lot of people. So keep that in the back of your mind. Now, the fact he had lost anything gambling was irrelevant. Okay, gambling losses can only be subtracted from gambling winnings. But it was undercut by Capone's expenses, which were all well beyond what he claimed income could afford. And Judge Wilkerson allowed Capone's spending to be presented at very great length. Now, as we know, Capone had nothing in his name. His house in Florida was in his wife's name. His cars were in his wife's name. His house in Chicago was in his mother's name. I mean, he had everything in everybody else's name. He only dealt with cash. So 
they had a hell of a time trying to prove that this guy made anything, but they used the example of his lifestyle. And like I said, they had charged him with uh, evading $215,000 worth of taxes plus a 50% um, tacked on for, for fraud, you know, during this five-year period. Like I said, that equaled to a little bit over a million dollars. Now, the prosecution, which was led by a guy named George E.Q. Johnson, he was the district attorney of Chicago, the government and the prosecution had a super easy case. You could physically see the way he was living, okay? Like, it, there was no hiding it. He didn't have any income to show. Uh, he kept no records, nothing like that. Now, the district attorney, Johnson, he couldn't, unfortunately, even trust the guys around him as a prosecutor. Capone actually sent a guy to track down George E.Q. Johnson, and they threatened to kill his entire family. Like, he hired five dudes from out of town to do it, and uh, George E.Q. Johnson found out about it. So he was given police protection, like, right off the bat. So in October 1931, jury selection begins. And the, as the trial gets ready to start, they find out through connections and bribery, Al Capone and the outfit found out who the jury was. And at least 10 members of this jury were offered money or gifts or both to basically give Capone a more favorable outcome. So at the same time, Capone had an opportunity to hire the best attorney in Chicago. Like he had the chance. The guy was actually a federal prosecutor who worked with the prosecutor, George E.Q. Johnson, in the past. And he said he would represent Capone for $100,000, which, as we know in today's money, was a nice chunk of change. And Capone thought it was too much money. So uh, he hired a straight-up defense attorney who defended gangsters and shit like that. But his defense attorney didn't really know shit about taxes or defending somebody on trial for tax evasion. And that really, really screwed Al Capone over at the end of the day. So when Judge Wilkerson finds out that the jury had been tampered with, that Capone found out who the jurors were, he switches the jury pool at the last minute with another judge. And this new jury pool that comes in has no sympathy whatsoever for Al Capone. Because this is hard times. This is 1931. People are barely getting by. People are starving. So, you know what I'm saying? They had no sympathy for a guy who would wear around... Uh, in today's equivalent, a $700,000 pinky ring, but still can't afford to pay $215,000 worth of taxes. Now, they weren't having that shit. On October 7th, the prosecution opened up its case. There was seven days of testimony saying he had diamond-encrusted belts, custom-made silk underwear. He was donating money to all these charities, too, right? And he, but he had no, no income to actually speak of that they could prove. He actually donated $58,000, which today would be almost a million, to the Police Widows and Orphans Fund. And along with, he was financing all these soup kitchens around the city and shit, too. But Capone was like unfazed, man. He really did not think that he would get 
that big of a sentence. He just kind of, uh, he thought he would get, you know, maybe three, maybe four years in a federal pen, and he'd still be living high on the hog, man. He'd still be very comfortable. He wouldn't have to go through what everybody else went through when he was in there. So he's just kind of unfazed, right? Now, the jury deliberated for about eight or nine hours. And on October 17th, 1931, Capone was convicted of five counts of income tax evasion. And he gets found guilty of three felonies for tax evasion and two misdemeanors for failing to file income taxes. He was sentenced a week later to 11 years in a federal prison. And this is still to this day the longest sentence ever handed out for income tax evasion. He was fined $50,000 plus $7,700 for court costs and was held liable for $215,000 plus interest due on his back taxes. And let's be honest, he was sentenced because of who he was. He was sentenced for all the things that they could not actually catch him on. He was sentenced for all the murders. He was sentenced for everything everything because of his name it wasn't about the taxes the taxes was just the window in you know that was just the door in so it is what it is you know um new lawyers were hired to represent al capone and they were washington-based tax experts they filed a writ of habeas corpus based on a supreme court ruling that tax evasion was not fraud, which apparently meant that Capone had been convicted on charges relating to years that were actually outside the time limit for prosecution. But a judge interpreted the law so that the time that Capone had spent in Miami was subtracted from the age of the offenses, which meant it denied the appeal of both Capone's conviction and his sentence. So he lost his appeal. So in May of 1932, at the age of 33, Capone was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary. When he gets there, he was about 250 pounds, 5'10". He was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also suffering uh, cocaine withdrawal. He had apparently used so much of it that it had messed up his nasal septum. Now, I've heard two conflicting stories about his cocaine use i heard that he didn't really use it i heard that he used it all the time so i could not find enough evidence either way so take that as you will capone had a prison job when he got there he was stitching the soles on shoes for eight hours a day capone starts failing mentally around this time like he was probably failing before that you know what i'm saying but as he's writing letters home, like his letters aren't very coherent. So the, uh, the advanced syphilis is starting to eat away at this dude's brain. Now, apparently in Atlanta, he was seen as a weak personality and apparently he was getting bullied by fellow inmates and his cellmate. Now there was a convict in there who was a pretty seasoned crook. His name was Red Rudensky and, uh, he was scared that Al Capone was going to have a breakdown. Rudensky knew Al Capone. He had been associated with the Capone gang in the outfit, but he was a pretty small-time criminal, and he ended up becoming like Al Capone's protector. 
So because of the circumstances at Atlanta, because, you know, he was getting visits from family a lot because he wasn't that far away from Chicago, he was supposedly getting special treatment because he was being protected by this uh, Red Rudensky. You know, a lot of the other prisoners were kind of pissed. They're like, man, this is bullshit. You know, he gets special treatment, da-da-da. Now, there's no solid evidence that Capone did get special treatment, but in August 1934, it was one of the reasons that Capone was moved to the recently opened Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, which was off the coast of San Francisco, known as The Rock. And when he gets there, he's treated like another guy. He was just another prisoner, but he was also the only prisoner held there for tax evasion. He was just simply known as inmate 85. On June 23rd, 1936, Capone was stabbed and wounded pretty bad by a fellow inmate named James Lucas. And he was like a low-level criminal trying to make a name for himself. And he stabbed Capone in the back with a pair of scissors, right? So while Capone is also at Alcatraz, his mental state starts declining. And it's getting worse than ever. Like, it's pretty evident that shit's going down they call it neurosyphilis and it is basically progressed like past the point of turning back his formal diagnosis of syphilis of the brain was made in february of 1938 and he spent his last year uh on alcatraz in the uh in the hospital section and he didn't even know where he was half the time he was confused he didn't know what the hell was going on. Like I said, man, he, that syphilis got to his brain and it, it was downhill from there. Now, also, while we're on this subject, a lot of you get into paranormal stories. Obviously, I do, too. I do episodes on them. There's always those stories about Al Capone being in Alcatraz and being him being haunted by, you know, either one or two guys that he had previously killed and he was haunted by their ghosts. OK, listen to me. Let's cut the shit. Al Capone was out of his damn mind at this point in time. He had no idea what was going on. So let's just chalk that up as a factor for some of these, some of these ghost stories. All right. I'm just going to throw that out there. But anyway, in January 6th, 1939, Capone had completed his term in Alcatraz. He was transferred to uh, Terminal Island in California to serve out his sentence for contempt of court. About 11 months later, on November 16, 1939, he was paroled, and this was because his wife, May, uh, appealed to the court. This was pretty much based on his reduced mental capacities. Like, the dude was literally almost like he had dementia, Alzheimer's-type shit. I mean, he was he was losing it, so they knew, the prison basically knew, they're like, okay, this guy is not a harm to society. He has no fucking clue what's going on half the time, so it is what it is. So when he gets out, he is referred to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and this was for the treatment of uh, parasis, which is caused by late-stage syphilis. The Johns Hopkins Hospital Board of Trustees refused to admit him because he was Al Capone. So he ended up going to Union Memorial Hospital instead. At this time, the most factual reporting about Capone may have been in a guy named H.L. Mencken's diary. 
According to the book by Lawrence Burgreen that I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, H.L. Mencken got the story right basically because he was he was an eminent hypochondriac who happened to be a good friend of the physician who treated Capone. And he said that Capone was an extremely docile patient. His mental disturbance takes the form of delusions and grandeur. He believes that he is the owner of a factory in Florida that employs 25,000 men. And that is a direct quote. So, like I said, you know, Capone's not doing good mentally. But Capone, he was very grateful for the good care that he did receive at this hospital. And he donated two Japanese weeping cherry trees to Union Memorial Hospital in 1939. On March 20th, 1940, Capone leaves Baltimore after a few weeks of uh, inpatient and a few weeks of outpatient care. And he goes back down to Palm Island, Florida. So in 1942 mass production of penicillin is started in the United States. Capone was one of the very first American patients that was treated with this new drug. Now, it was too late at that point for him to reverse any of the damage to his brain. You know, it did uh, did slow down the progression of it, though. But by 1946, his physician and a Baltimore psychiatrist both examined him and concluded that Al Capone had the mentality of a 12-year-old child because the uh, the neurosyphilis was so advanced at that point. And Capone is, you know, at this point in Palm Island, Florida, at his house. He's spending time with his wife and his family and stuff like that. And on January 21st, 1947, Capone has a stroke. He regained consciousness and started to improve, but he ended up a uh, contracting bronchopneumonia and then on January 22nd and on January 25th he suffered a cardiac arrest and surrounded by his family at his home Capone died after his heart failed as a result of uh, apoplexy. The body was then transported back to Chicago a week later and a private funeral was held. He was originally buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Chicago but in 1950, Capone's remains, along with his father's and his brother, uh, were moved to Mount Carmel C Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. Now, I know <laughs> part three was kind of boring. There was not really much exciting shit going on. Personally, I thought it was pretty exciting reading about how how they actually got him, how they busted him how it all went down, how they tracked all those chat checks from Ralph Capone to Jack Guzik to Sam Guzik to, you know, Dr. Owens and all that shit. I found that pretty, pretty fascinating personally, but I hope it wasn't too boring for you guys. With all that being said, as we all know, like I, I never try to play devil's advocate with bad people. It, Capone was, was a bad person, but there were some good things that he did do. Like, if he would spill a drink on somebody's dress, you know, at the club, he would hand them a $100 bill. And at that point in time, $100 was a shitload of money. You know, it's like, hey, go get this, go get this cleaned, go get this, you know, taken care of. But at the same time, he's also responsible for supposedly ordering the murders of like 300 fucking people, you know, all enemies of his, of course. 
you know, but like uh, the situation with Jack Guzik, you know, getting beat up at the bar by Joe Howard and Jack Guzik being one of Al Capone's friends and Al Capone went and took care of the problem, went and shot Joe Howard in the face four times, you know, and then two in the shoulders, he was falling down. In the words of Al Capone, when it came to friends, it was better to have four quarters than a hundred pennies. There ain't too many people that can disagree with that, me being one of them, because I, I keep my circle very small. Capone, I don't know, he's an interesting, he's a very polarizing character. When you mention Chicago, he's more than likely one of the first people you think of, and whether anybody likes to admit it or not, during the 1920s, with the exception of uh, Lindbergh, Al Capone was probably the most famous American on the planet. I mean, everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what he was capable of. You can take that as you will, but I suppose I will uh, see you folks on the flip side.